turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Boys and girls, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. You'll find it after Philemon and after Titus and the Timothys. It's in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Well, society hasn't done Noah any favors at all. When most people think about Noah, they think of flannel graphs, cute songs, and cartoons. I think sometimes it's hard to take this guy seriously. He's about animals a big boat, and some water. But that's not the Noah of the Bible. The Noah we learn about from Hebrews 11, Genesis 6, and Matthew 24 is actually a man of profound faith and godly fear. More Scripture is dedicated to him than any pre-flood believer. I found Abel and Enoch quite profound in themselves in their own right, but Noah seems to stand out to the author of Hebrews. Noah was unique. He perhaps lived in the worst of times, and yet Scripture says that Noah, quote, found favor in God's sight, that he was righteous, and that he walked with God. In other words, Noah was the embodiment of a sinner justified by faith alone and whose faith was directed by the Word of God. Noah rested and received The warning given by God that the flood was coming. He took that warning seriously and he made preparations. Our outline to follow along in our text today, boys and girls, is number one, a world in which Noah lived. We have to understand this. If we don't get this, we will not understand the flood. Number one, the world in which Noah lived. And number two, the judgment in which Noah believed. The judgment in which Noah believed. Let's begin with the world in which Noah lived. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. You should probably put your finger or maybe put your ribbon in Hebrews 11. We're going to spend some time in Hebrew, or, uh, Genesis chapter 6 today. I want to give you a little bit of kind of world Noah lived in. There we go. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 tells us the world in which Noah lived. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, the world in which Noah lived was pretty bad. The context you'll see is that um, the sons of God, verse 2 of chapter 6 of Genesis, the sons of God, which I don't take to be demonic beings or heavenly beings. Uh, I think these are human kings. They mixed with the daughters of man and they spawned this seed called the Nephilim who are mighty war heroes famous for their violence and bloodshed. That's the world in which Noah lived. He's living among a group of people that are famous for their violence and bloodshed, which brings us to the verse 5, which we wrote, or which we read. Um, Noah is looking at this world, and it is filled with evil. And I just want to draw out very quickly three aspects to the world in which Noah lived and the wickedness therein. First, we are told that it is great. It is great. The text says in verse 5 that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So there's an abundance of sin in Noah's day. There was an excessiveness of sin. Sin was pronounced. Sin was prominent. So great was sin that verse 11 in chapter 6 of Genesis says that the earth was filled with violence. It was filled with violence. Theft, murder, rage. Picture it in your mind if you can. All of these consume the earth. There was a greatness relating to the sinfulness of man upon the earth. Second, there was an inwardness to this sin. If you thought just acts of sin was not bad enough, there was an inwardness to sin. Look at the text again, verse 5. God saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Sin was inward. It still is. Every inclination, every purpose, every aim, every thought corrupted in sin. So nothing escapes sin's touch is what I think we ought to take from that phrase. Jeremiah 17.9 What is um, desperately sick? The heart Sin has reached all the way down to what we are. So mankind has two problems in God's sight. A bad record. Actual sins. And we have a bad heart. What we call original sin. And the second problem is by far the greater of the two. Every facet 
of what we are inwardly, our mind, will, affections, which is the heart, belongs to sin, save the grace of Christ. And this is why, by the way, even the flood could not eradicate sin, ultimately. Why? Because sin was on the boat inside Noah and his family. Even a righteous man. No, there would need to come a day a greater Noah would need to come and eradicate sin once and for all by the blood of His cross and by His second coming, finally eradicating it in this earth. Third aspect to the world in which Noah lived. There is an absoluteness to sin. Did you, did you hear it? That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only, only evil continually. These are some bad days. Apart from the grace of Christ, we can do nothing but sin. Apart from the grace of Christ, we can do nothing but sin. No matter how much the natural man is urged by the law or the gospel to trust in Christ, he is not able to. All right? There is a moral inability upon the natural man. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, here it is, it cannot. It's a word of ability, or in this case, inability. So natural man, because of original sin, has a moral inability to please God. Romans 6.16, he is a slave of sin in bondage. Sin is his master. Sin is in control. That is what total depravity means. It does not mean utter depravity. Okay? Okay? Natural man still has the capability to perform acts of kindness, acts of great courage, domestic affection, and civic good. Okay? It does not mean that you are as evil as you always could be or should be. Total depravity means every facet of what you are has been touched by sin. So, the doctrine of original sin asserts that every aspect of the unbeliever's nature is corrupt. And as such, he is incapable of performing any spiritual good in God's sight and thus worthy of judgment. And this is why the text can say the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And that's the world in which Noah lived. Lesson to be learned. I think Moses wants us to see something. The world in which Noah lived is entirely different than the one God created. In fact, I think Moses goes out of his way to show us this. Genesis 1.31 says this. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very 
Good kids. Six chapters later, verse 12, look at it. We are told the exact opposite. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Everything is not what it once was. Everything is upside down, inside out. Man lost his sense of God. Sin had infected everything. And I think Moses is saying when you get to chapter 6, this is not the world God created. He shouldn't have looked out and seen what he saw. But man has lost his sense of God. Everything is not what it once was. Sin was crouching at the door of his heart and man gave his soul to it. And that's the reason the flood comes. It is not because God flew off the handle. If we don't understand the world in which Noah lived, you may be prone to think that the flood and what the flood foreshadows, the final judgment, is a little bit excessive or too severe. And it is not. Because of the world in which we live and the world in which Noah lived. Secondly, we need to see the warning in which Noah believed. Back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. The warning in which Noah believed. Read it again. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now look at that phrase there in verse 7. Uh, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. That should jog your memory of verse 1 of Hebrews uh, 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or persuasion of things not seen. And that, that phrase, not seen, is picked up here with Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. So what I think the author is saying here is God warns Noah of events Noah has never seen before or probably could ever imagine. Noah gets that warning, puts his faith in God, is justified by faith alone. And the incredible nature of this faith is that he's never seen a boat this big and he's never experienced water to that degree. And that's why this text says, Noah being warned by God by faith concerning events as yet unseen. That's why Noah stands out as a portrait of faith. Because what he heard from God was more real and certain to his soul 
than what his physical eyes saw. Absolutely incredible. That's what faith did for Noah. Now, back to Genesis chapter 6. I want to see, I want us to see again this warning in context. Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. Look at this story here. This is absolutely, literally unbelievable. 6.13 God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence, violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. So 500 feet long, 85 feet wide, 50 feet high. It's a big boat. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, maybe I should just squeeze that in here. I think the ark is a temple of God. Uh, Whenever you have dimensions of being built, 98% of the time in Scripture is talking about building of a temple or a sanctuary. You also have the three uh, tiered sections of the ark. And how many tiers or sections of the temple were there? Three. Thank you, Oakley. So I think the ark, by the way, this has nothing to do with the sermon. So I think the ark is a temple of God, so to speak. Bring it back here. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Absolutely incredible warning. An incredible story. Let me just try to paint a picture for you what is going on here. Noah, to our best estimates, lived 100 miles from the coast. So it's likely that he and his city never saw the amount of water that would come. Likely. From the time of the warning that the flood would come, to the first drops of rain, 120 years. From the time of the warning to the time of the flood, 120 years. 2 Peter 2.5, don't go there, I'll just tell it to you tells us that Noah, in addition to being an expert craftsman, was a herald of righteousness. So Noah was a preacher of the gospel. 
Are you beginning to, you have the scene in your mind? So put yourself in Noah's shoes. For 120 years, you wake up and you build an ark. And you're a preacher of the gospel. And there you are, down in the city, flee from the judgment of God. Run from the floodwaters that's coming. Come inside the ark. Come inside the ark of refuge and, and, and safety. Don't get washed away by the waters that's coming for 120 years. You build and you preach. You build and you preach. Can you imagine the ridicule at week two? Noah, you fool. You think God is going to destroy the very world He made? We haven't even seen water that much, let alone water that's going to fill the earth and destroy everything. Noah, you are a fool. For 120 years. What's the lesson to learn? It is not have family worship so your household is saved. Jesus builds the ark himself and saves his household, the church. But here's the real lesson to be learned, and Jesus gives it for us in Matthew 24. As in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. One taken, the other left. One taken to dine with the triune God for all of eternity and one left to die in your sin. Just as the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The lesson to be learned is heed the warning like Noah and believe that judgment is coming. Flee from the judgment of God. Come inside the ark and be saved. Come to the ark of Christ. Run from sin. Trust in Christ alone. Don't get washed away by the fire of God's judgment. His judgment is coming. Believe the warning you've heard week after week in this church. Don't play games. Don't think 
that His patience is some sort of benign kindness that will just look after you. No. Come to Christ today. So long as today is called today. Come to Christ and come inside the ark of the cross. That's the lesson to learn. Believe that the warning of judgment is real and more certain than you can think today. Come to Christ. Martin Luther. He says, every time you see a rainbow, the love is observation. Every time, every time you see a rainbow and that small arc at the bottom is blue, symbolizes that the former world was destroyed by water. So also the outer arc of the rainbow, colored by red, symbolizes that this present world will be destroyed by fire. My friends, my friends, believe in the warning that judgment is coming. It is a coming upon this world, and if you are not in Christ, you will die in your sin. Thanks be to God, Jesus was given for us, that you may rest in the ark of His cross and in His blood. Come to the ark today. You know, this November, uh, next month, marks my 20 years of being saved. Twenty years ago, this November, I was baptized in a hot tub. And I was thinking about this text and my baptism and my salvation. I was just overwhelmed. that the fire of God's wrath was laid on Christ. I've been walking with Him for 20 years. Christ is an ark to me. Is He the ark of refuge for you? Have you come inside of Him never to be lost again? What a joy. Believe the warning that judgment is coming. Well, I want to just draw out one, one aspect about Noah's faith. If you bear with me just for a few more minutes. There's a, there's a phrase here in verse 7. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And then it says this wonderful phrase, in reverent fear. In reverent fear. That phrase wasn't used for Abel. That phrase wasn't used for Enoch. It's used for Noah. 
Noah's faith had a godly fear to it. Noah's faith had an awe about it. He wasn't glib or flippant about his faith. He had a reverent fear. Real faith, beloved, is infused with godly fear. Real faith is infused with godly fear. A heart that is soft and stands in awe of both the mercies and judgments of God. If I can define godly fear, that's it. A heart that is soft and stands in awe of both the mercies and judgments of God. Noah's faith knew the flood was coming, the judgment of God, so he rested in the ark, the mercy of the Lord, and he stood in awe of his God that he would do such a thing. When the psalmist describes fear, godly fear that is, Psalm 33, 8, he says these words, let all the earth fear the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? Let all the inhabitants, he says, of the world stand in awe of Him. It's to be stricken with an awe of God. Yes, a tinge of dread, even of terror, of what He will do to those outside of the ark of Christ. But more importantly, For you, beloved, the believer, to stand in mighty awe of our God, of His justice and His mercy. So let me just just give you four privileges of godly fear as we walk away, okay? I love these. One, you get a license to trust God. Psalm 115, 11. You can go there if you'd like. You have a license to trust God, beloved. Psalm 115, 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. What a privilege this is. A license, a grant to trust God. The psalmist pictures God as one there for the taking. Trust Him. Believe upon Him. He's there for the taking. Full license to take Him as He is. And notice, this is not just a general exhortation. You, He says. You. He calls you by name. He singles you out among the nations. Oh, you, dear Christian, trust in the Lord Believe in Him. My friends, well try the promises of God. Well try the promises of God. You have a license, a full license to trust Him. Second, you have a teacher to guide you. Psalm 25, verse 12. You have a teacher to guide you. Psalm 25, verse 12. Who is the man that fears the Lord? 
Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. So you and I are not left to our ignorance. Praise God. We are not left to our ignorance, nor are we left to our enemies. Psalm 25 says, whoever wanders, which is us, whoever turns aside, which is you and me, there the Lord is, the shepherd of your soul, to lead you, to guide you, to trust. He takes it upon himself to bring you to green pastures. He's the shepherd of our souls to teach you what a privilege. Three, you have a watchman to save you. You have a watchman to save you. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. You have a license to trust God. You have a teacher to guide you. And you have a watchman to save you. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. That is incredible on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So His eye is upon you to watch over you for your good. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He that keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. The Israel of God, the church, His eye is upon you. You're the object of His delight. That's what that phrase means. The apple of his eye, his eye is upon you. The object of his, his delight, the jewels of this world, his eye is upon you not to take advantage of you and not to destroy you for your sins, but to watch over you to ensure that you'll make it all the way home. He watches over you to save you. Fourth and lastly, You have a love to comfort you. You have a love to comfort you. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. So this love was designed for you before the world was. It is from everlasting to everlasting and it will be upon you, dear Christian, when the world ends. <laughs> it is a long-lived love. From everlasting to everlasting. It will live longer than your sin. It will live longer than your sin. It will live longer than temptation. It will live longer than your sorrows. It is a love from everlasting to everlasting. My friends, what can hell and death do to him who has this love upon him? Hell and death will search for all eternity to find your sin but they will never find it because it has been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ from everlasting 
to everlasting is this love upon those who fear him. What a privilege. Do you know the deluge of God's love in Christ? Do you know the deluge of God's love in Christ for the sinner? Or might you know it today by faith? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are humbled by what you are. And we are humbled to a lesser extent of what Noah is and was. Our faith seems so fickle, so short-lived compared to 120 years. Oh God, we pray that you might deliver us from shrinking back and that you would uphold us and sustain us in this life until you eradicate sin once and for all on that day of days when the Son of Man breaks through the clouds and comes for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.